This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Ghanem. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a great show today. There's so much to cover. I, I don't even think we're going to be able to cover everything. In the last few months in Palestine, entire Palestinian communities between Ramallah and Jericho have been chased out by colonial settler violence and, you know, the apartheid policies of the uh, of the apartheid state. And this is paving the way for a complete Israeli takeover of thousands of acres of Palestinian land. We have to cover this story. It's incredibly important. We're getting also closer to the U.S.-Israel uh, visa waiver program, which looks like it's going to be approved, Jamal, to the chagrin of the international community, especially Palestinian Americans who continue to be denied equal access to historic Palestine. And there have been a number of recent incidents where Palestinian Americans have been denied entry despite the agreement that the apartheid state has with the U.S. government with this visa program. We're going to be visiting that story. And listen, your favorite MAGA Republican is back in the news. Jared Kushner may be subpoenaed by the House Oversight Committee because Democrats are asking the GOP to subpoena Jared Kushner for his $3 billion backed private equity fund. And this happened while he was a paid, you know, senior advisor to the president of the United States at the time. And by the way, there's a fourth story. We're not going to have time, but I think it's worth mentioning the catastrophe between Libya and the apartheid state. You know, the normalization that occurred was supposed to occur between Libya and Israel. Complete disaster. Seems like Libyans, Arabs, North Africans are not in favor of normalization the way some governments are. We may not be able to cover that today, Jamal, because it's a big story. Probably cover it next time. But before we get to that, we're going to watch a really great interview that you did with Asa Winstanley and discussing his recent book, Weaponizing Anti-Semitism, How the Israeli Lobby Brought Down Jeremy Corbyn. Great interview. We're going to talk about it. It's very topical and an excellent interview. Yeah, it's an excellent book. Uh, I recommend it uh, during the show for people to to purchase it. Uh, it's available in many bookstores, available on, on the publisher's site, and of course, uh, major houses like Amazon, etc. So let's watch Asa. MP Jeremy Corbyn's historic support for social justice and anti-racism galvanized grassroots support and led to his election as leader of the Labour Party in 2015. As a steadfast supporter of Palestinian rights, Corbyn was a threat to the pro-Israel lobby when his swelling popularity and union endorsements increased the possibility of him being elected prime minister. Also reviled by conservatives on other fronts, a coordinated smear campaign was undertaken to delegitimize the Labour Party under Corbyn by deploying an onslaught of accusations of anti-Semitism against it. As the media embraced, then doubled down on this, on this narrative, Corbyn saw his powerful message of social change sidelined and his campaign consumed with defending ill-founded accusations. His popularity and political capital plummeted, and he was later suspended from the Labour Party in 2020 after stating that he believed 
that anti-Semitism smears had been used by his opponents. It was later found that the most aggressive onslaughts were made by Israel proxies presenting as local British political and community organizations promoting Jewish interests. They are simultaneously financed by and coordinate with either the Israeli embassy or or its other government affiliates. Joining us on Arab Talk this week is Asa Winstonley. His recently released book, Weaponizing Anti-Semitism, How the Israel Lobby Brought Down Jeremy Corbyn, he reveals how the strategy to break Corbyn unfolded. He is an investigative journalist who lives in London as and is an associate editor of the Electronic Intifada. Welcome to Arab Talk, Asa. Great to be with you, Jamal. Well, first, let me start by congratulating you, uh, congratulating you on this vast overview of the rise and fall of Jeremy Corbyn. You have been covering this issue on the ground as a journalist for Electronic Intifada for eight years. You've had a ringside seat. Give a brief summary of uh, Jeremy Corbyn's appeal and his improbable rise to the leader of the Labour Party through popular support. Jeremy Corbyn is somebody who was on the the left of the Labour Party. The British Labour Party, especially in the Tony Blair years, really became very much a conservative party, a small city conservative party in, in many ways. And its policies were very much similar to the ruling Conservative Party in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, even when it got into government after 1997, uh, between 1997 and 2010, um, it carried out a lot of the same neoliberal policies that the Conservatives under Margaret Thatcher did. Uh, Privatisation, you know, dismantling of public services and also foreign wars. So despite that, Jeremy Corbyn remained in the Labour Party all those years, although he was opposed to all those things. And he was he was a Labour Party MP for many decades, um, but he was always on the left of the party. And he was somebody who was involved in campaigning, in campaigning for, uh, for justice, for human rights, for anti-racist causes and for anti-imperialist causes. And that included um, the struggle against the apartheid regime in South Africa, for example, but also famously included and includes the Palestine Solidarity Movement and the struggle for liberation in Palestine. So Jeremy Corbyn had a kind of mass appeal. Like he he was viewed by the mainstream media as kind of um, this sort of, I mean, the, the conservative British press, I mean, the British press in general is very conservative, very pro-establishment. And it always regarded him as, quote unquote, what they termed the loony left, where, you know, this idea that he was um, unpopular and that the left was, would never be popular to the, the masses in Britain. Um, but when Jeremy Corbyn became the leader of the Labour Party, that proved to be untrue. That, I mean, as many of us really knew, his he had a mass appeal, absolutely. He had, um, you know, he his policies were really supported by broad swathes of the electorate in general like you know he he just had he was portrayed by the corporate media in this country as um a kind of radical a kind of far left radical hard right marxist and all this kind of stuff um and um that wasn't the case you know he was really a classical social democrat in 
in the you know it, what would have long been the mainstream of the British Labour Party in past years, um, before the Tony Blair years. He was, uh, I mean, he, he, he was at the at the forefront on many issues unpopular with the political establishment, such as uh, the war on Iraq, uh, austerity. Uh, but his support of Palestinian rights and criticism of Israel's brutal oppression intensified the urgency to delegitimize him and his allies with anti-Semitic smears. Uh, the tactic yeah. benefited, benefited other political interests that wanted Corbyn out as well, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And and this is what I really wrote the book about. And uh, there was a whole period. So, you know, just to say that um, when Corbyn first ran for the leadership of the Labour Party, you know, he appealed, it, it was in 2015. And he, at first he was not expected to win. I mean, that's an understatement. He was considered the outside the candidate, you know, that, that it would be next to impossible for him to win. But then something started happening and there was this kind of mass phenomenon where, you know, the fact that he had this long record of principled support for um, popular causes, um, whether it's, you know, things like the renationalization of the rails, um, you know, properly funding the NHS and stopping the dismantling of the NHS, the free public health care system that we still narrowly um, just about have in this country, although it's been um, dismantled, um, or whether it was opposing the war in Iraq, which were, uh, which Tony Blair launched and joined with, uh, infamously joined with George W. Bush, um, which was always um, a very unpopular war in the country, as it was around the world. Throughout all those years, Jeremy Corbyn was campaigning against those things. You know, he was one of the leaders of the anti-war movement. Um, he was he was um, leading the demonstrations, speaking to the, the anti-war rallies and so forth, um, as well as um, working in Parliament on the back benches. Um, and so, you know, his campaign unexpectedly took off in the summer of 15. And as you said, it meant that all of a sudden the powers that be thought, oh, oh my goodness, here's, here's a popular socialist who's a, who's kind of a threat to the establishment. We've got to do something about this. And they started throwing out all kinds of different smears against him. And most of them didn't work. Most of them were kind of um, dismissed and um, Corbyn fought back against them. And, and they didn't really get very far. But the one that did have a massive effect in the end and played a massive role in Corbyn's ultimate downfall in 2019 and 2020, as I argue in the book, was the smears of anti-Semitism, was this idea that Jeremy Corbyn was, if not himself personally an anti-Semite, although some of them did claim that, um, that, the, that you know his friends and allies and his movement, the popular movement that joined the Labour Party, because 200,000 people joined the Labour Party. You know, it became the biggest political party in Western Europe for a time under Corbyn. Um, it became a, a really a mass movement you know, that that mass movement was somehow anti-Jewish. It was like riddled with racism, with riddled with, you know, the, 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 the idea was that, oh, well, the far left always claims to be anti-racist, but actually they're the real racists because they're, um, you know, they're discriminating against Jews. But in 99 uh, of 100 cases of these allegations, um, what was actually being um, attacked, what was what was coming up was not anti-Semitism, was actually criticism of Israel, was um, opposition to Zionism, the Israeli state's official ideology, um, and so on and so forth. And so it was. It really became this anti-Semitism smear. Really became a powerful political weapon, and that's you know what's behind the title of the book, weaponizing anti-Semitism. 
You you describe how um, those lobby lobby groups, pro-Israel lobby groups, how they picked apart his closest allies one by one. Uh, one mm. example is Jackie Walker. Uh, she's uh, an anti-racist political activist with both African and Jewish heritage. Talk about her experience. Yeah, Jackie Walker is an interesting example. So Jackie Walker was, for a time, was part of a group called Momentum, which was formed around about uh, the end of 2015, 2016. And the idea, although it really, it, it really quite quickly went off the rails, but the initial idea of the movement was that to bring some sort of institutional support to Corbyn under the leadership of the Labour Party, because everybody knew that the establishment of the Labour Party was thoroughly, thoroughly conservative, and it was thoroughly um, neoliberal, very, very, quite right wing, really. And, uh, you know, it was thoroughly Blairite, pro pro the policies of Tony Blair, very anti-Corbyn. And everyone knew really from the start that that there would be internal sabotage against Corbyn, and and that's what happened. So the idea was to create a, a, a separate group that would be inside the Labour Party, but would have some independence from the Labour Party to support Corbyn's policies and to kind of bring this institutional, give some kind of institutional support to the popular movement. And that was the idea behind Momentum. At least that's why a lot of people joined it on a popular level. Um, It it quickly, really fairly quickly went off the rails. But for a time, Jackie Walker was um, one of its leaders. She was um, she was the I, I forget the position now. I think she was the deputy chairperson of Momentum, something like that. Um, and um, as you mentioned, she's um, she's both black and um, Jewish. She's of mixed race heritage, um, and um, yeah, on, on both sides of her family, incidentally. Um, and I mean, she's she's of Jewish heritage on both the black and the white sides of her family, which is an interesting fact of uh, history, which is sort of you know. And uh, underappreciated in the West of um, the history of uh, of colonialism and slavery in the in the West Indies, the Caribbean. Um, but um, you know, this was something that she talked about her heritage, and she's also an anti-Zionist. So she's someone who um, opposes Israel, Israeli apartheid, and Israeli racism. Um, and she was suspended for talking about some of the history of this, and and uh, and, it, and it was in a Facebook posting which was really a private conversation, um, uh, you know, between Facebook friends, as it were, her and some other people that she knew uh, on Facebook. You know, there's, 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 I go through the whole story in detail in my book, but. I know, I know it's a a story, but I found it really rich is that she was required to take uh, anti-Semitism training because she was found, according to them, not to be sufficiently aware of the prevalence of racism. I mean, here is someone who probably suffered from <laughs> racism herself that she was asked to take a uh, an anti-Semitism training course. Well, this is the irony of what's happening in the Labour Party now. There is, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, quote-unquote anti-racist trainings that are being required of Labour Party membership and especially Labour Party officers and for MPs and prospective MPs to take. And for the most part, it's all anti-Semitism. It's all uh, awareness training on anti-Semitism, which is being carried out by another pro-Israel group called an Israel lobby group, really, which is actually quite close to the Israeli embassy called the Jewish Labour Movement. Um, 
And, um, you know, yeah, Jackie Walker went along to this um, anti this training on anti-Semitism awareness that the GLM did back in 2016 at Labour Party conference. And she went there really to kind of challenge the narrative that they were putting forward about all the, because they were, you know, they the Jewish Labour Movement is affiliated to the Labour Party. So ostensibly it's supposed to be supporting the Labour Party from, with, from within, quote unquote, the Jewish community, although actually really its main priority in a lot of ways is supporting Israel and sabotaging the left. But, you know, that's their ostensible purpose. But actually what they were doing in this training, the Jewish Labour Movement, was really making, um, the main point they were making was how, under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party had become this terrible cesspit of anti-Semitism. And they really maintained, and this is another major part of the book. Um, I've got a whole chapter, as you know, on the Jewish Labour Movement and their origins and history and how it was kind of a dead group that was really revived specifically in 2015, specifically to fight Jeremy Corbyn. And they so, also went you know, after non-Jews uh, during the smear campaign, uh, as you've mentioned in the book as well, right? Yeah, you know, so by uh, by 2017, 2018, um, and especially 2019, when there was a, a second general election, the Jewish Labour Movement, like other Israel lobby groups, were claiming that the Labour Party had become, quote-unquote, an institutionally anti-Semitic party. This was the claim. And, it, you know, it was completely false. There was no evidence of it whatsoever. You know, there was never really any evidence of any serious anti-Semitism. You know, there might have been some marginal cases here and there. You know, for sure, people, you know, there was probably some tweets that were badly phrased and so on and so forth. But there was, you know, all the evidence, all the factual evidence showed and all the statistics, all the figures that the Labour Party itself released, even of allegations of anti-Semitism, which were often false in themselves. But even those allegations were numerically insignificant compared to the actual membership of the Labour Party. And all the polling and all the statistics show time and time again that the Labour Party was, uh, you know, the least racist, uh, the, certainly the least anti-Semitic, uh, one of the, the least anti-Semitic parties in the country. And it was definitely less anti-Semitism in the Labour Party than the ruling Conservative Party. And yet, you know, they very rarely got um, attacked or criticised for anti-Semitism. Um, and so, yeah, you know, they, they, the Jewish labor movement and the Israel lobby in general attacked um, uh, non-Jews and Jews alike for anti-Semitism. Right. You know, if people, if like, like Jackie Walker, you know, if people were Jewish and they criticized Israel, they were opposed to, to, to Israeli racism, then racism, they were opposed to Zionism. And then they were sort of smeared, as you know, as um, anti, you know, anti, self-hating Jews or, um, you know, being uh, anti-Semitic in some sort of roundabout way when the priority really of this group is to defend Israel. Uh, but uh, accusation of anti-Semitism are never satisfied with apologies. It only increases guilt by association. The end goal is to shut down any and all criticism of Israel and Zionism as being inherently anti-Semitic. This is the goal of the IHRA working definition of anti-Semitism. A concession the smear campaign gained was to insert the IHRA into the Labour Party's articles. Can you elab elaborate mm -hmm. on this? Yes. So this was really a major part of the, the offensive, really, of the smear campaign. 
was the successful um, integration of the IHRA um, so-called working definition of anti-Semitism. You know, I think a lot of your listeners will be familiar with it. You know, it it claims to be its proponents claim that it is this you know internationally accepted um, standard definition of anti-Semitism, but actually it's an incredibly which is accepted around the world and all this kind of stuff. But that's really incredibly far from the truth. You know, it's it's a, it's um it's a relatively new definition. The so the RHRA itself only really um, got going and came up with this particular document in 2016, although the actual wording of the document is based on a slightly older document. But nonetheless, the whole um, thrust of the document is to um, really take away from the idea that of anti-Semitism being the simple dictionary definition of anti-Semitism, which is of hatred of or prejudice against Jews as Jews, just simply as that, as a form of bigotry, or you can understand it as a form of racism, however you want to phrase that. Um, and to take away from that simple def dictionary definition and to change the meaning of anti-Semitism into um, what the Israeli government has been referring to for many decades of uh, as the new anti-Semitism, which is anti-Zionism, essentially. So they're saying the problem is not hatred of Jews. The problem is hatred of Israel. The problem is criticism of Israel. The problem is opposition to Israel's policy, i.e. its apartheid uh, policies and policies of colonization against the, the indigenous Palestinian people and uh, its wars of aggression against um, neighboring Arab states. So the IHRA document changes that, and it has all these stipulations is is it really a form of this new anti-Semitism which the Israeli government has been arguing for for many decades? Which is that you know it has it had these stipulations and it had and it's still now it's still pushed in every you know it's been accepted by the British government, um, it's been accepted to an extent by the State Department, the U.S. State Department, and um, you know some European countries, uh, but it isn't globally accepted by any means. Really, it's it's really it's a very small um, really European group, and it, which includes Israel which obviously isn't in Europe, but is a European settler colony. Um, so, you know, it has the problem with the document itself is it has these 10 so-called um, examples. I think it's 10 uh, examples, supposed examples of anti-Semitism, and no less than seven of them um, mention Israel. Well, there's no need to mention Israel whatsoever. And one of them in particular essentially states that it is anti-Semitic to uh to criticize israel as a racist state to say to point out the racism of israel and, and how it's not just particular israeli government policies but like the found the founding of israel itself as a racist state which it is um that 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 factual statement is somehow racist is somehow anti-semitic and so unfortunately this document ultimately after a struggle a bit of a struggle in um the summer of 2018, did get ultimately accepted by the Labour Party. To give credit where credit's due, Corbyn himself did try and resist that, um, but he was kind of isolated, really, in, in the leadership of the Labour Party. There was not really anyone at the top levels of the Labour Party, even his closest allies, really, um, within the parliamentary Labour Party and uh, his most of his advisors, although there were some exceptions, 
uh, ended up backing it, albeit reluctantly. But they just thought, oh, this is just take this is. And it became a. it's hard to describe now, Jamal. You know, this was a national news story. You know, this this wasn't just like it, it wasn't just like electronic intifada covering this. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't just us covering this. I mean, it wasn't, you know, the us, the, the, the alternative press covering this. This was a national news story. Of course, they were covering in a really misleading way, which added to this sense of crisis for the Labour Party. Oh, you know, this there's this terrible crisis day in and day out of, of, of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And what is Jeremy Corbyn going to do? And, you know, shouldn't he stand down and all this kind of stuff? And it just meant that it made it really difficult for him to um, pursue his actual policies, you know, his, 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 his popular policy. So all the focus was away from the policies that were popular with the electorate um, and on to just this manufactured crisis. You point out that the most aggressive campaigners and anti-Semitic accusers coordinated with either uh, the Israeli embassy or other Israeli government affiliates, it's like an onion that you keep peeling to find these buried mm. connections to Israeli lobbies coordinated through a local community group. An example is campaign against anti-Semitism. Uh, a recent mm. article you co-wrote established that it uh, presents as uh, a UK charity but received over $500,000 from the Jewish National Fund. Tell us about it. That's right, yeah. So this is uh, the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism. It's a relatively new group. Um, it is a. Um, it was started in the summer of 2014 when there was Israel's you know, deadly war against the population of the Gaza Strip in which thousands of people were killed, thousands of Palestinians were killed. Uh, including children. Um, and in the midst of that, this new uh, group started up called calling itself the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism. Um, but really, its whole priority all along, and it's been going for nearly eight years now, um, its whole priority all along has been the um, protection of Israel and the smearing of Israel's enemies and critics as um quote-unquote anti-semitic i mean and you can see that just in who it focuses all its you know it claims to be now it's now registered as a charity it claims to be this apolitical cha charity um but actually all its attention is always focused on number one palestinians number two palace supporters of palestinians palestine solidarity movement you know the left uh, and, and during the Corbyn years, it was especially the left. It was especially the Labour Party, and particularly Jeremy Corbyn himself. That was a major, major part, major campaign that they carried out against Corbyn, um, and um, uh, and and also Muslims as well. Britain's Muslims. So you know, they very, very rarely, if ever, mention the far right, which actually is. Um, anti-Semitic in a lot of cases, although you know increasingly the far right ha may still be anti-Semitic, but its real main enemy these these decades is tends to be Muslims for the, the sort of fascist right. Um, but the campaign against anti-Semitism rarely mentions the far right. 
And so you can see from their priorities, um, the, the anti-Zionist Jewish um, activist, Tony Greenstein, wrote an article for us for Electronic Control a few years ago about the campaign against anti-Semitism. And he described them as a campaign against Palestinians because, and I'd say that's accurate because that's really all their focus. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, this article that uh, Rebecca Gordon-Esbitt wrote for us and I, I, um, I helped with, um, in that, I th- it was really interesting what she discovered was that, as you said, the Jewish National Fund, which is this quasi-governmental Israeli global agency to really fundraise for Israeli settlement um, all around the world. It's British-affiliated group, the, the JNF UK, funded the campaign against anti-Semitism, specifically during those years. As you mentioned, it was the equivalent of half a million US dollars. Um, and um, yeah, so it, it, it just showed that it shows that the links are there, shows that these groups so often, they claim to be the representatives of, quote unquote, the Jewish community. Uh, and they have this phrase, when they challenge by anti-Zionist Jews, to do you really represent? You don't represent us. They say, "Oh well, we're the mainstream Jewish community." So they're kind of dealing. And I have a you know a chapter about that in the book um, Jews and Non-Jews. I call the chapter where the um, the the Jews who are critical of Israel, critical of Zionism, or even outright opposed to Israel and Zionism are delegitimized by the pro-Israel groups and considered to be not really somehow genuine Jewish people in some way, but that they're all that they're not mainstream, quote unquote, whatever that's supposed to mean. Um, and um, that was fairly successful. And so the, the uh, campaign against anti-Semitism has these links to the Israeli state that we see, and yet they claim to be the representatives of Britain's Jews. Well, even amongst Zionists in, in Britain, that is actually contested to an extent because they rep- the, the campaign against anti-Semitism represents a particular faction of British Zionism. It's really the right wing of British Zionism to a, lo- to a large degree. Um, and they, um, they yeah, it, one of the most telling incidents about the campaign against anti-Semitism came at the very end of 2019. So in 2019, we had the the general election, the second general election of uh, that Jeremy Corbyn went through. Uh, in the 2017 general election, pre- two years prior, he actually done surprisingly well. He didn't win, obviously, he didn't become prime minister, but he increased Labour Party's seats and he challenged the ruling Conservative Party. The ruling Conservative Party lost seats. They'd been expected to win seats. They lost seats, um, and uh, you know they had to form a coalition government with um, a, a loyalist party in the north of Ireland. Um, as a result of that, so Corbyn didn't win outright, but he did, you know, provide a really massive challenge and uh, to 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 the, the to the government. And that was a, even more a major achievement because he was being sabotaged from within by his own uh, party colleagues, by his own bureaucracy. And especially, as I argue in the book, by the pro-Israel lobby, the parts of the pro-Israel lobby which were infiltrated inside to the Labour well, Party, especially uh, the, the Israel lobby against Corbyn was not limited to to the UK. You you, you cite in uh, 2019 Mike Pompeo, then Secretary of State under Trump, in a private mm. meeting with the Israel lobby with Israel lobby leaders, and I'm quoting here that the U.S. government could stage its own intervention to stop Corbyn becoming prime minister. 
I mean, this takes it to a geopolitical level, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a really good example, Jamal. Like, it just shows how, um, I mean, this is really the American deep state uh, working together collaboratively with the Israel lobby, the the, the um, pro-Israel groups in the United States. That's who he was meeting with. Um, also, there was this kind of, uh, my friend uh, Loki, who's this um, uh, Iraqi rapper. British uh, rapper, yeah, yeah, rapper and activist, um, and uh, increasingly a journalist as well. Um, he um, he makes he's been making a point recently. There is a kind of trilateral security state between United States, Britain, and Israel, whereby they will work together to, against their own internal enemies. And so, and that's really what we saw, really in um, in the Corbyn years, was we saw the British deep state, the CIA to a lesser extent that we know of, you know, the, Pompe- this is the, the thing is about, obviously about the, the, when we say the British deep state, the MI5 and MI6 and the CIA, the American deep state, obviously they, these are secretive organizations. So we don't know to a large degree to what they were doing, but we can see some of what they were doing just by how they were openly briefing the press. You know, they were openly, there was openly stories smearing Jeremy Corbyn as a threat to national security. There were dozens of stories like this. Just openly in those stories, it said, according to a security source, Corbyn shouldn't be allowed to become prime minister, all this. So security source, of course, that means MI5. You know, it means MI5, it means MI6, right? And obviously Mike Pompeo, former head of the CIA, um, the um, Secretary of State at the time. And so, um, so, you know, this was... This was an audio that was leaked from that from that meeting, and it was reported by the Washington Post. But you know, I suppose they wanted that's the kind of thing they wanted to be leaked because it was it, it was almost kind of an open threat in a way. You know, that they were I mean, saying the way I look Pompeo at it, I mean, we would stop it. The way I look at it, I mean, we know the the United States, the CIA interfered in elections in other countries, but to to do it yeah. to to Britain, and ex- excuse my language, it's like looking at the UK as a banana republic that they can, you know, influence the election of a prime minister. I mean, I didn't see, I didn't read, see an outcry by the British public about that. No, it's shame. You know, um, there, there is a kind of, um, I mean, the way I think about Britain's role of imperialism in the world these days is really a kind of vassal state to America. And imperialism and so they they work hand in hand in that way and so they sort of follow the orders but i mean i think what we saw during the corbyn years was that the israel lobby and the state of israel itself because these groups as we've said the, the, the israel lobby groups you know what what do we mean when we say the israel lobby well it's a kind of spectrum of groups right it's everything from professional lobbyists you know think tankers um uh organizations like apac in in the US and in Britain, the, the the closest equivalents are there's separate ones within each political party. So there's a Conservative Friends of Israel, Labour Friends of Israel, and even the third party, the Liberal Democrats, has a Liberal Democrats Friends of Israel. And these groups are pro-Israel groups. They claim to be separate from the Israeli state, but actually, what we see in especially it was proven in the Al Jazeera documentary that Labour Friends of Israel, especially. Um, is essentially really a front group for the Israeli embassy. And that was admitted not in so many words by their 
um, by one of their staff members who's now their political director. So there's a spectrum of these groups. Some of them are very close and they're just kind of puppets of the Israeli embassies. And then there's uh, at the other side, there's sort of just pro-Israel volunteers and activists who are, you know, kind of just campaigners for campaigners for apartheid and for racism really um but they and, and they might not necessarily work particularly closely with the state of israel itself but they support it and so there's a spectrum and there's kind of um variations all along that um so that's you know so the, the israel lobby is not one monolith in that way there's lots of different groups but what it what we know for a fact is that a lot of these groups even some of the activists quote unquote um work with the state of Israel, and they are they coordinate their activities with the state of Israel, and especially with um, the the Ministry of Strategic Affairs, as it was. It's now been uh, its activities have now been wound up into the the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. But nonetheless, these are state backed um, sabotage projects because that's what they were doing in the Labour Party. They were sabotaging the Labour Party, and that's what we see. And and, and the Israel lobby, the state of Israel itself, became such a powerful. It became. What I call in the book um, a kind of vanguard of reaction that was really useful for the forces of American and British imperialism to really counter its own population, counter popular movements within its own population. Um, the threat of Corbynism, the threat that the Labour Party would become like an actual socialist party and not just a, a socialist party on paper and actually carrying out all the same policies of the ruling Conservative Party. And so, you know, um, the Israel lobby and uh, particularly weaponized anti-Semitism was this really successful um, op. Well, uh, it, a must read, Weaponizing Anti-Semitism, How the Israel Lobby Brought Down Jeremy Corbyn. You can definitely get it um, on Amazon or other uh, websites uh, where actually on Amazon it gets a, it's getting a solid five-star review. So uh I mean, that's probably an easy way to, to, to buy it. And I'm sure it's available in other bookstores. Yeah, Asa Winstley, uh, you can get it, sorry, you can get it direct from the publisher at allbooks.com. Um, and I've got a Substack as well. People can follow me there. It's asawinstanley.substack.com. But uh, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, Asa, well, thank you for your dedication. I want to also... Uh, I want to thank the Electronic Intifada for supporting this high caliber of uh, journalism. And thank you again for coming on Arab Talk. That's the voice in the face of Asa Winstanley discussing his recent book on weaponizing anti-Semitism, how the Israeli lobby brought down Jeremy Corbyn. It's, it's a great interview. It's an excellent book. This is something, obviously, that we've been talking about for so many years now, how the Israeli lobby is weaponizing anti-Semitism to take down people who are critical of the apartheid state. What uh, Asa has done is actually done a very academically and rigorous uh, analysis of the weaponization of anti-Semitism. It's uh, pretty impressive, actually. Yeah, I mean, the weaponization, we talk about a lot, of course, in academia and other positions, but this is the kind of like the uh, top of the chain, let's say, right. uh, in, in British politics. I mean, right. they've took down someone who would have been Prime Minister of England. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so, you know, that's that's really very powerful. Uh, moving on to uh, our next story, Jazz, there, there are almost now no Palestinians, and I'm saying that, 
you know, and I've taken that drive many times. If you drive between Jerusalem and Ramallah, and you drive or east, or you go, for example, from Jerusalem or from Ramallah, both places to Jericho, the land leading to Jericho remaining in these vast areas, most of the communities, uh, and we're talking about about 150,000 dunums or 150 square kilometers of the occupied West Bank, most of the people have fled for their lives in recent months as a result of intensifying Israeli settler attacks and violence and, and, and government land seizure. And of course, we know it, this is all backed by the Israeli government and state institutions. So there's a whole campaign right. of without calling it ethnically cleansing. They don't say that they don't use that word. Basically call it the emptying of, the, of that area of its Palestinian population. Again, it's a it's a sign of ethnic cleansing. Yes, you know, that's but, what's but, going on. But, and 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 at the same time, they're 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 annexing large swaths of the occupied territory for Jewish settlements. And this happened just like accelerated. It's been happening for a long time, but has accelerated in the past few months. Well, that's exactly right, Jamal. And I think that's really the point here. Whether we're talking about the the expansion of the illegal colonial settlements in the West Bank and the settler violence. We've been focusing primarily in Hebron. We've been uh, in in other areas of the West Bank, Ramallah, Jerusalem, and things like that. But this is a big story because, as you said, these are wide open swaths of really beautiful agricultural land that have been, you know, farmed and used by Palestinians for, you know, you know, hundreds, if not, you know, how many generations? It's such a long time. And the the colonial illegal settlers are chasing these communities out of these beautiful lands. But let me ask you a question. Have you heard anything from the State Department about this? Have you heard Absolutely any- not. And, and, and this, this, this thing that's happening, this egregious uh, action. Land grab. Land grab. Land grab is... Uh, Data is available, and data has been collected by the UN Office of uh, the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, otherwise known as OCHA, and submitted on a weekly basis. They have it available on their website, and it goes to all United Nations Human Rights Organization members and major governments, the EU, the United States, the UK. They've They've been like submitting it on a weekly basis, and we don't have time to talk about all the communities that have been erased now. Uh, I just named a few of them, like 200 families of Ayn Samia. Again, they dismantled, the, they forced them to dismantle their own homes. Right. And, and they fled following relentless settler violence. Uh, this past July, uh, 100-strong community of Rasatin, that's another small area, a village, followed suit. In this early August, just like a month ago, just 88 families from Al-Qaboon were forced to abandon uh, their homes. Ayn uh, al-Rashrash is under attack. Jabit, Ras al-Ayn, Ras al-Ouja, under settler attack, daily settler attack. And we can go on and go on. And 
as you've mentioned, this has been done under the watch once in a while under the watchful eyes of the United States, the EU. And once in a while, we hear a condemnation by the EU representatives, not the United States. The United States will say, "Well, this, you know, gotta slow down," or like they have a softer language. Well, they, they say it's not helpful. It's that's not what... helpful. Yes, that's the <laughs> way. It's not helpful for the two-state solution. I mean, they're still selling that BS phantom phony whatever bs as you've mentioned and of course all this land is is located in area c correct uh, which is the which is uh, designated for israeli civil and military control under the oslo accords and it's privately owned lands by palestinians and and then the other land that is not privately owned israel claims that it is state land the, the by the occupation authorities and today, out of this territory, Palestinians only have access to about 1,000 dunums. If that, Jamal, if that you know, And even those are prone to settler harassment and, and attacks. So we are well, witnessing, and what's what, if you ask anybody who lives there, they're telling you it's a Nakba. We are witnessing a second or third Nakba, like 1948, and this is from a resident in in Samia, he was telling uh, during an interview. Uh, his name is Muhammad Hussein. He said uh, it's like 1948, invoking the year of the Nakba, of course, the catastrophe, catastrophe, and the expulsion of uh, thousands of Palestinians from their homeland during Israel's establishment. Well, Jamal, this is this is actually a very big story, and it's occurring in the context when the apartheid state has become increasingly aggressive towards Palestinians, and the settler violence has been out of control. And as I said in the intro to this, we tend to focus a little bit around the major metropolitan areas in the West Bank, whether it's Jerusalem, Ramallah, Hebron, uh but what we're missing here is this large, large landmass, you know, huge and beautiful. Cause I've done that, I've done that drive, you know, a lot of times too. It's, it's, it's really enormously beautiful and much of it is very fertile and it's been used by indigenous Palestinians forever. And these colonial settlers are torching it, are driving Palestinian families out and you know, it's the same question that we bring up every single week, Jamal. Why is the international community, it's, they're silent about it or they make weak statements, but now we're seeing Arab countries. I've, I've countries. said this a few times and I've posted it on Twitter and, and, and people think it's harsh, but I said Palestinians have no options now. The only options they have either for the international community to arm them so they can defend their homes and farms and land, or they have to, to dispatch an international protection. Yeah, like a UN peacekeeping force. Peacekeeping to, to protect them against these armed settlers thugs. who, thugs who, many of them serve in the Israeli military or have served, and they have, they have uh, automatic weapons, Jess. Yeah. So, so that's the only two options because the third option is, is the ethnic cleansing, which is happening before our eyes. But I want to move gonna, on to the next but we story. Have to, but we have to follow this story, obviously, Jamal. Yeah. It's an incredibly important story before we get to the next one. And we're getting closer to Israel 
gaining it's, its coveted admission to the U.S. visa waiver program, which Huge offers mistake. a free a visa-free entry to the United States for 40 countries. So they want to be part of those 40 countries, mostly European EU countries. The main condition of, of this visa waiver is reciprocity. Each country must offer a visa-free entry to you as citizens, regardless of their ethnic, ethnicity, color, religion, you name it. You know, you just, a what is it called? Blue is blue. Your blue passport <laughs> is the same. It should be treated everywhere as a blue passport, except... If you're Palestinian. If you're Palestinian for in Israel, so or Arab or Muslim. So Israel has had this, uh, uh, or you could say it, get out of jail card for so many years, uh, profiling, harassing, and sending back people who, who are of Arab Muslim descent or, 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 criti- or people who criticize Israel from entering the country. And so now uh, Benjamin Netanyahu had this uh, whole campaign recently, basically instructing the, uh, which I found it very interesting, instructed the uh, uh, the, Musa, the Shin Bet that uh, mans the airports and basically it kind of take it easy on basically Arabs and Muslims during <laughs> the trial period, basically to relax, he said the Shin Bet, to relax its airport procedures and this is from uh, a uh, an article of one of our colleagues here, Richard Silverstein, wrote because he got some information from a well-informed Israeli security source that told him that Netanyahu had personally told the agency chief, the Shin Bet agency chief, Ronan Barr, that the visa waiver program was a top priority. And, and as a result, uh, Barr promised to end the decades-old policy known unofficially as at the airport, every Arab is a terrorist. That's, right. their, that's their policy. You have to treat you as, and a therefore terrorist. harass and mistreat, especially Palestinian-American uh, travelers. And and so it's we're talking about this. This is a gimmick because the gimmick is... This, by October, I think October is the date, if, if right. I'm correct, Fury. Israel would have passed this trial period and would say, you see, we're letting them come in. There's no prob- problem. But, There's but no that's not true. But long it's simply, uh, but security it's checks, and which involved ransacking luggage and demand, demanding electronic device passwords and so, so, so. And then at the end of that period, they'll go back to what they have been doing all along, and we know that the United States does not reverse policies, especially the Biden administration. That's right, Jamal. But the reality is, is that we're getting reports on a regular, if not weekly basis, of Palestinian Americans continuing to be harassed. They're being harassed at airports in the United States, attempting to get on flights to the apartheid state. They're being harassed and denied. And there's still harassment that occurs at the at the border, at airports, and at the crossings, at the various crossings for the at the bridges in the in the West Bank. So it's a joke. There's a good chance that the uh, apartheid government of Israel will be given this waiver. But the idea that somehow Palestinian Americans are going to get equal treatment and be allowed to visit Palestine is a big joke. We, we're going to follow this. 
But there are a number of high-profile cases just this week, Jamal, of Palestinian Americans. Well, that's why the recommendation to all Palestinian Americans and others who travel and face any kind of discrimination, harassment, there is now a website set by the State Department to lodge a complaint. Don't be lazy and do so. You know, because a lot of Palestinians, they got so used to it and so, you know, they've like, accepted it. Yeah. And they accepted it that they have not been filing any complaints and they should make, they should make sure to file a complaint because I've known people who just come, came back and who were subjected to harassment at the Ben Gurion airport. Our last story, just is that uh, Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland has raised the questions about affinity partners. You know, who is in charge of affinity partners? Oh, yeah, it's uh, Jared Kushner, man. Jared Kushner and his $3 billion private equity fund uh, and the sovereign wealth funds backing it, um, you know, basically... Uh, shortly after leaving the White House, Jared Kushner got $2 billion in funding from the Saudi government for his private fund. Uh, of course, his favorite uh, partner, Mohammed bin Salman, who famously or infamously said that Jared is in his little pocket. That's right. And you hear it from me. I heard it, that this is what he was referring to Jared. He had Jared now is in his little pocket. And of course, he developed uh, close ties to Kushner, pushed the deal through. And and now, for the first time, finally, the Democrats on the House Oversight Committee are asking the GOP to investigate. Uh, you know, and here's the ridiculous thing. The, the reason they're asking for it, not because it is illegal and immoral at the same time to use your political power. And it's, anyway, it's illegal and immoral to be and, and nepotism involved to be assigned to be the senior advisor to the president of the United States when his daughter and his, uh, we're talking about his daughter and his uh, son-in-law. Right. But also, they're doing it just kind of like tit for tat because of uh, Hunter, Hunter Biden. Bo- Right. That's the only reason right. they're doing it. That's kind of like the way they're saying, kind of like they're shooting a whatever something over the bow of the of the GOP, saying if you're going to keep going after Hunter Biden, this is what we're going to do to Jared Kushner. When in fact this should have been done from day one, because they were they saying that they want to take a hard look at Kushner's three billion dollar private equity fund. I mean, wouldn't it make sense? Immediately that when you have the son-in-law of the president of the United States, all of a sudden he's bringing $2 billion from the Saudis and getting paid $40 million a year for managing these funds, wouldn't that, shouldn't that be a red flag, Jess? Well, it's beyond a red flag, Jamal, because this all occurred during his tenure as a senior advisor. He was paid by the U.S. government as a senior advisor, and he took advantage of these close relationships. I mean, Hunter Biden may have done a bunch of things that were not quite kosher, if you will, of course. But Hunter Biden was not a paid senior advisor to the president of the United States. We're talking about Jared Kushner. He was a government official. He was a paid government official. There's so much illegal and wrong about this. But I have to agree with you. It, it is tit for tat. You know, Kushner got away with this, um, with all the stuff, with the four indictments coming out against uh, the former president, Trump. 
where why aren't Kushner and uh, Ivanka part of these investigations? They exactly. were in the mid- They were in the middle of it, Jamal. <laughs> Listen, just even the Saudis, because I've been reading, like some Saudi officials uh, were reportedly uh, they've been complaining to MBS, and their complainers saying because they cited that Kushner has had no experience. Ziff, nothing. <laughs> and affinities in, in managing these funds and, and his uh, company, Affinity's high management fees, 1.25% of the principal each year that they take out from, from, from that um, fund. So yeah. except that MBS, who chairs the fund, intervened and said, no, the deal got to go through. And last but not least, uh, Affinity Partners, where is it located? In Miami. <laughs> you know, it's in it's in Florida. And um, surprise, uh, surprise. Several of a number of the former Trump White House staffers work there. Of so it's course. not just Kushner, they hired in-house hiring. And at the same time and at the same time they had, I think, two generals, uh, two high-ranking generals who were involved in brokering the so-called Abraham Accords. I mean, it reeks. It It smells. Yeah, it smells. With all this thing here and and here finally. So hopefully they'll they'll put their words into action and and bring him in and and go through indictment because he's the only one, by the way, from the close circle. He got all that. How many of them now? 18 or 19 19 well he should be number 20th well i think he and ivanka should be 20 and 21 actually but the bad news jamal he's gonna get away with it he's he's gonna avoid it because the way our divided government is right now people are gonna get away with it they're gonna get away with murder i don't think think about that every son or daughter or son-in-law of a president now when they leave when they leave office should come out with three billion dollars in in because of their relationship, the close relationship that they have cre- made with one, Saudi Arabia, sure, one, Qatar, one, and wealthy countries. One other quick point about that: the Wall Street Dur- Journal did actually an analysis of Affinity Partners and found that they're not doing very well as a as a. Of as course, a, because Kushner is in charge. What exp- he's he's in real estate. He's not in 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 managing equity. Yeah, and so it's not making much money, to put it mildly. And plus, I should say, he's in losing real estate ventures. He lost millions of dollars in no, real estate. actually billions, but who's counting? You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest shows, and we'll see you next week. See you next week. 